Well, good morning. Strength, yes. My name is Mike Blankenship. I was here, I came last week and uh, hadn't been here in three months, I think at least. And uh, someone came in that had been here forever and said, uh, Hi, I haven't been here in six months. So they didn't even know I had been gone. So, um, but I, uh, it's good to be back. We, I, I was really weird walking in last week, um, trying to figure out what the rules were. Um, I hadn't been in the building for a little while, where we can wear masks, where we can't wear masks, how we were supposed to walk. This weird thing is weird, isn't it? That's anyway. And I think we're streaming now, so hello streamers. Uh, I'm not, yes. And so we are bidding uh, Esther last week. We had Bob, we got to hear from Bob preach. That was awesome. Yes. And so, but I thought this morning, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to just kind of give you a little bit. I've been on a sabbatical, give you a little bit about that, and then get into semester. And so let me pray, and we'll, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for um, loving us. In the song we just sang, that nobody loves us like you, and that is absolutely true. And so we thank you for the depth of your love. And I pray, Lord, that we would just understand that, that we would grasp how much you love us. And I'm amazed as I just continue to to be in a relationship with you, how much more I find out that you do love me. And so I thank you for that. And pray that you'd be with us today as we, as we um, look into Esther. Pray that we would be encouraged um, to, to pursue you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here, if you weren't here last week, I was just talking. We went on a, I went on a sabbatical for three months, and we were, the elders were talking, and they started, one of them, you know, a couple of just like, you know what, we should, you and Aaron should start thinking about sabbaticals, thinking through that, and so we started talking about it a little bit more, and then it, I got to this place, and I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe I should do a sabbatical, and we started looking at time frame, and I have children that are in school, and a wife that works at the school, and so we're like, well, we better do this like right now. And so it was like really fast. And I know I talked to, had lunch with Carol this week and Carol's like, yeah, people were wondering if it was like you were coming back, if you got fired or we were sure exactly what was happening uh, because it happened so fast. Um, and so and that's kind of why it happened fast because we were just trying to figure it, uh, it was more scheduling and things of that nature. And so we, we started calling my friends that have been on sabbatical because I've done this, I guess I've been in ministry for 30 years and I had never been on a sabbatical and so I started calling some friends that I knew had been on sabbaticals and trying to figure out, okay, what do you do on a sabbatical? Um, I, this is weird. Um, and so a friend of mine from California, he had, I remember he went on a three-month sabbatical because I was studying and looking and reading and the elders are reading and they're like, you know, one month sabbatical is definitely not long enough. It needs to be at least two or three, really, to get a true sabbatical. And so, so I started at this guy that I called Chris Cannon. He was a pastor at Kings Harbor in Redondo Beach, and he said, um, "Well, what you should do." And he's now working with pastors. He said, "You know, the first month you just need to relax and kind of get over, let go of the church, let go of the ministry. The second month, you know, start working, and then the third month, you know, start thinking about focusing and getting back into it." And so, it didn't exactly go all that way. We were trying to to model that. That's what we were trying to do, but. We got into it, and when I started into it, I was reading this book by, by John Piper called The Pleasures of God, and, I, and one of the things he was saying in there is that he was talking to, that God wants to make his name great. 
And I was processing that idea. It's like, well, God's not arrogant. He's just, you know, and that type of thing. But I started processing and thinking and reading through all the scriptures. It was like, hmm, that's, that makes sense. And then I went to the Lord's Prayer where Jesus was teaching the people how to pray. The disciples said, teach us how to pray. And he said to them, pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven. What does he say next? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And you think of that word hallowed means to be revered that he would be revered and that he would be honored. And so that was a thought process going into sabbatical, just thinking about how do, I, you know, how do we hallow his name? How do how, my life and what I do and what, how I live? And so we went into sabbat, this thing and thinking about this, and it was just something I was meditating on through the first portion of, of my sabbatical, or our sabbatical. And then Natalie and I, about the, within a month, we went to this, this little conference thing in Lake Arrowhead where we were with another couple that were, had been pastors and she, it was a husband and wife and just kind of walking us through thing and they took us through focusing on our marriage. I went through some prepared and rich stuff but one of the things that are really, uh, a couple of things we walked away with from that was this idea of daily office and they were just stressing this idea of daily office which is this idea of just spending time with God and I we had just gone through Daniel when I had, we were going through Daniel and how Daniel, different times of the day, would go and just pray, pray to God. And I, know I pray in the morning, I pray in the evening, but during the day, I don't know about you guys, I get busy. And, and you, you kind of, I get into the day and I was like, why do I get unfocused sometimes? I don't know, anybody in the middle of the day ever get unfocused? And I, I just was thinking, I need to, and so this daily office thing is just different parts of the day, mark it four times a day, just stopping and remembering God. And so it's something that I've put in my daily calendar every day. I am not good at it yet, but I'm trying to get there. But this idea, that's, so that's an idea that Natalie and I walked away with. Another one is Sabbath. And one of the Ten Commandments is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. In my whole life, I've thought, well, it's Sunday. I go to church on Sunday, I keep it holy. I go to, I'm in the building, I do what I'm supposed to do. But the idea of a Sabbath for yourself, that you stop for a day and you're not working, you're not doing anything. And so we've really focused in on a Sabbath and stopping. And for us, our Sabbath has become Saturday where we just, we're not working. We're just spending time with our family and, and it, we're, we're good. We're, we're two weeks in. <laughs> We're, we're doing all right. Um, but another one was just goals. Focus on our family, our marriage, our king, the kingdom, personal, career. But one of the things that got my attention when I was there was this, you know, we've been talking about obedience. I think my last sermon I talked about obedience and this idea of being obedient to God. And I want to be obedient to God and I want to do what he says. But this, when I walked away, the guy that was there, he said, you know, you seem like an obedient guy. You talk about obedience, but... I think you need to think about slow obedience. And, I, and it really started processing this idea of slow obedience and being um, not just big in church things and being obedient, but being obedient in who I am, in my character, how I am as a husband, how I am as a father. And I would say, you know, if I had to do a checklist, I'm like, hey, I'm doing pretty good. I'm good at that. I'm a pastor. I do good at those types of things. And and I walked away from there, and a friend of mine said, hey, you should read this book, Dangerous Prayer, by Greg Groeschel. And I, so I picked it up, and I just started listening to it. And basically, in it, he takes one, Psalms 139, and he focuses on three things, which is search me, um, uh, test me, and, and, know, and basically this idea, see if there's any offensive ways in me. And so search me and know my heart. Uh, test me and know uh, my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive ways. And I started praying that prayer. 
<laughs> and that's why the book's called Dangerous Prayer, because when you start praying that, God shows you things that you really, well, eventually you want to see, but in the moment you really don't want to see, um, because it's, you start opening things about yourself. <laughs> and so that's the thing about I, uh, a dangerous prayer is that, you know, God loves it when you open yourself up to him. He desires for us to be, and the idea of obedience is not so much of you know, doing all these right things, but it's being who he wants you to be. And so that's something that as we were going through, I was, you know, I was thinking through some of these things that, that God started bringing up to me, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good, though. But I'm a, I'm a, I do well. I'm all right. But we were staying at uh, Darling's, and we were for a week, I don't know, we stayed there a couple times during this, trying to get out of the house, and I, every morning I would get up early, I'd go out on the lake and, and just think and pray and listen to songs and read the Bible and, and meditate. And there was one specific day I was out there, a guy got a hold of me, he says, I want, this is what I want you to focus on, I want you, and I'm like, well, what's the big deal? And he's like, I want you to stop doing that. And I'm like, Okay, I will. But this, this thing that where God was trying to get a hold of us, and he wants us to see what he wants us to see and focus on the things that he wants, because he wants us to be obedient in every area of our life. And so when you open yourself up and you say, test me, <laughs> is there any offensive way in me, God? That's kind of dangerous. And started trying to do that. Well, fast forward, I, it's a battle call. I went to Seaside the second to last week of of the sabbatical, and I decided in that week I wanted to fast and pray. Um, that's something I was thinking about in the sabbatical, but this thing's almost over and I haven't done it yet, so I, I was praying, but I thought about this idea of fasting, and a friend of mine recommended a book by this guy named Ronnie Floyd, which is called, uh, was called Fasting and Praying, <laughs> and I, I, I like, felt like I really needed to read it really quick so because I was going to fast and pray for that week and so I got there and I finished it as I the first in the first day because I did I was like I'm going to fast and pray I don't want to kill myself this week and then like in my head God's like dude I fasted and prayed I fasted for 40 days you're going to be fine uh, you're talking five wimp and I, you know at that point I only the longest I'd ever fasted and prayed was like 30 hours uh, like in a 30 hour famine with the youth group and I did it because I was a leader and I was supposed to um, and I had to show the kids how to do it and I, and, I, and I learned a whole lot when I was fasted and praying um, God opened some things up to me and I but it wasn't until the fourth day of fasting and praying. And one of the things Ronnie Floyd said in his book, he says, every time I fast and pray, and this guy is like 40 days and doing it, and I was like, you're really good. That's good for you. But he said God always shows up no matter how long he fasts, whether it's a day, whether it's 40 days, whatever, whenever he fasts, God shows up. It's not always in the way you want him to, like, like you want him to, but he, he will show up every single time. And it was the fourth day, I was fasting and praying, and I was got up about, it was in the morning, I woke up, and I just started listening to the book of Acts. And I listened to all 28 chapters of the book of Acts, but as I was listening to the book of Acts, I was struck by how many times the Spirit of God led people. I don't know if you've ever picked up on this. I've read Acts many, many, many times, but this time was the Spirit of God leading his people. Whether it was Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, it was Cornelius, it was Peter, it was Stephen preaching, telling the people they grieve the Holy Spirit, but over and over and over, the, the Holy Spirit shows up. 
And so I was like, That's, and I started writing them all down, and I got up that morning, and I prayed. God, I want, I was praying, and it's, I'm like, God, the Spirit showed up a ton in Acts. I want you to show up. And he got a hold of me in the moment, and he says, you know, I've been showing up for a long time. I've been trying to get your attention on some things, and you just continue to ignore me in certain areas of your life, and I, I'm trying to get a hold of you. If you want me to work, and you want me to work through you, I need all of you. Dangerous prayer. It's dangerous because all of a sudden God's getting a hold of you. You think you're doing all right, and and I'm not. I, and I think this is an amazing thing. I'm sitting here telling you it's bad, but it, like as if it's bad, but it's amazing. Because what God did for me during that time is that as I basically as I walked away from or drove away from Seaside, you know, I have always known that God loves me and that he wants to be in a relationship with me, and I've been in a relationship with him, but the depth of his love uh, became even more deep to me, the understanding how much he loves me. Because if I was to ask you right now, does God love you? Every single one of us would say, probably say, yes, he loves me. But to the depth of what he, how much he loves you, no matter where you're at, no matter what mess you're in, no matter what you've ever done, he adores you. And there's some of us sitting here right now that probably have things in our lives that are like, he loves me, but he doesn't love me here. And that's not true. He loves every single part of you, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's going on in your life. And so I drove away from there. I was thinking, you know, I, I have a God that absolutely adores me. Because when he de- deals in your messes, when he deals with those types of things, he walks with you and he holds your hand. I, I've, I had I meant to write a song down. It just came back to me. I forgot. But I was listening to uh, Hillsongs United, and they have a song called Highlands. And basically in that song, Highlands, he's sing, talking about how God's with you in the valley, and he's with you on the mountaintop. No matter how life's going for you, he's with you. No matter where you're at. And there's a part of the song, and he talks about when you're going through the mess, that he'll meet you in the mess and walk you out the other side. And I think a lot of times we forget that. We, like, we love God on Sunday morning. We like to sing songs and we, we hear a sermon. We preach, you know, we read the Bible. We feel really, really good about ourselves. But it's in the mess that God doesn't get to show up there and doesn't get to be there for some. And God wants to be in the mess. And so I walked away realizing I have a God that loves me. And I have a God that I can absolutely trust. And so, you know, when I go on sabbatical, you're thinking, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm thinking way up here. God's, no, I want to focus on right here with you. And no matter what's going on, no matter what's weighing us down, you know, what, in life, he needs to get it. And he needs to get it first. You know, we're, in these times we're in right now, a lot of times, it, it can be a bummer. We're living in this time where it's, it's tough. Our, our, our nation's somewhat divided. Or do I say somewhat, or are they absolutely divided? <laughs> um, and, you know, and gun sales are going up, ammo's selling, everybody's getting prepared for uh, something. But at the end of the day, we have our God. You know, no matter what's going on, I can tell you right now, and I'm, I'm looking out amongst, I, I have my family right now, as I, I have two seniors, and, I, and there's a couple more seniors as I look out. You know, my whole life, we plan, you plan for kids to grow, and, and they, get, they get to be in their, you know, this is kind of the pinnacle of youth, that you get to be a senior in high school. And, and it's a cool thing for them. 
And for them, for my kids, you know, another thing that we were very, you know, sports have been big in our family. And so you kind of wait for this moment. Okay, they're senior year. And if you've lived in this town and you know the youth in this town, they're like, okay, these, you're, when your kids are seniors, we're going to start getting back to being good again in sports. And guess what? We're seniors now and we don't get to play. And so, you know, for some of you that are, you know, you've been through high school, you've been through all this stuff, it's, you know, you're in a different place in life, but that's where we're at right now. And it's kind of frustrating. And for me, it can get me down, and for my kids, it could even be more down. As we sat there last night with my family, one of my kids is like, you know, I watched the Alabama game, and it was completely packed. Why do they get to play and we don't get to play? And I can't answer those questions, and I can't really do anything about it. But I can tell you in the midst of things, as a dad, and as a Christian man, and as a person that loves God with all my heart, and knows he loves me, but also knows that he loves my children, is like, I can't really answer what is going on, but I know that we can be faithful to the God we have. And that's my chore. That's my, not even a chore, it's a great thing I get to do. And so, leading him to that particular place. But where we find ourselves, this thing keeps, I'm, I'm out of experience. Um, where we're at Nestor, they find themselves in some similar places. You know, you, I don't know, I, I, last week was the first time I got back into Esther, but Esther found herself in a very similar place. And Esther and Mordecai. Now that they, they basically, they had to remain faithful despite what was going on in the situation, right? They were going through some hard stuff. You know, Bob preached through five, six, and seven. I don't know about you guys. I only got to hear five, six, and seven. But you go back to the beginning of Esther, and, you know, there was King Azuerus, and he had a, a, a wife, had a queen, and he was having this big party. And in this big party he's having at, on the seventh day, he wanted his wife to come and be shown off because she was an attractive lady. And so he invites her in, and, uh, and, and she says, I'm not coming. And so the king's like, what do you mean you're not coming? It's a law, you have to come. And all the officials that are sitting there with him are like, who does she think she is? And so it comes down that he's like, all right, you're done. And so the, moving on, he's like, I need a new one. And so they held like, like, a, like you've seen The Bachelor. They kind of did this bachelor thing with all the pretty women. And they kind of paraded them before the king over a period of time. And in this particular time, they, it was basically Esther, who was a very attractive lady, is Mordecai. You know, Mordecai, it was Mordecai's cousin. Now, if I would have took a test two weeks ago on... Is Mordecai Esther's father, uncle, or cousin? I would have said uncle, because that's what I always heard. But when I was studying it this week, I'm like, no, it's not the uncle, it's the cousin. But it was her cousin. And Mordecai you know, came out of captivity from, uh, from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. And basically, they're sitting here in this place with King, with the area that they're in is Susa, and basically is Iran now. And so basically, Esther wins the bachelor. And so now she's queen, and she's pleasing to the king's eye. And so they, they, she gets to kind of live in the palace with the king. Well, 
She's, she's queen, and right after she becomes queen, Mordecai's sitting down in the, in, wherever he's at, and by the gate, and he hears two people say that they're going to try to kill the king. And so Mordecai's like, well, that's not good. That shouldn't happen. So he tells Esther, hey, someone's going to kill the king. And so Esther tells the king, and king's like, well, that's not going to happen. And so the two guys didn't do too well, and they ended up on the gallows in the middle of town. Um, but King Azuarius is like, you know, I think I probably should do something here. I need to name somebody that like, kind of have a closer eye. And so he names Haman, and he puts Haman over like second in charge, and Haman becomes very, very important. And he kind of gets the signet ring, and he gets to be important. And you see Haman, you should bow to Haman. Well, Haman gets done being announced that he's this, and he steps down and goes through uh, the town, comes by the gate, and Mordecai's there. And Mordecai looks at him looks away from him, but when the guy walks by, you're supposed to bow because he's second in charge, and Mordecai's like, I'm not bowing to you. And so he doesn't bow to him, and so after a little bit, the people are saying, Mordecai, why aren't you bowing? He says, well, I don't bow to him. Man, I, I have a God. I'm not he didn't necessarily say that, but he's not, he wasn't bowing because he's a Jew, and he doesn't bow to anybody. And so Haman goes by again, and he gets really frustrated with Mordecai because he doesn't bow. And so he's, he's like, you know, i got to do something about this. So he decides that, that he's gonna, he goes to the king and he says, you know what, you've handed down a law. And the law says that people need to bow to me. And people aren't following that because they're following their own law. And so because of that, I think we need to kill all the Jews and annihilate them. And he says, matter of fact, I got something for you. I got a bunch of cash here that I'm going to put into your treasuries to help this process out. And the king's like, that sounds like a good idea. If they're not following my law, I'm going to, absolutely, we need to kill these people. And so he gets his scribe together, and they kind of start writing this stuff up, and they say, everybody that doesn't bow, or he doesn't say everybody bow, he says, if you're a Jew, basically, you're going to be killed, and you're going to be annihilated. And so they had 127 providences, so he gets together, they write it in every different type of language, they send it out, write it, stamp on it, signet ring, and they send this thing out. So nobody, if you're a Jew, you're going to be killed and annihilated. The couriers take the message, and so Mordecai gets wind of it, and Mordecai is just mortified. <laughs> And so he tears his clothes, he's frustrated, um, he puts on sackcloth, I didn't, you know, anybody know what sackcloth are? You guys learned a couple weeks ago, it's like animal hair. So Queen, Queen Esther hears about this and she's like, well, go down and get my cousin some garments, please, gets her servants, and then he, they take it to him and he's like, I'm not putting those things on. And so goes back to, tells Esther, Esther goes, well, go ask him what the heck the problem is. And goes back to, hey, uh, to him, and Mordecai says, well, Haman, give a bunch of money, and now we're all going to get killed. And so he, the eunuch goes back, he, tell, he gives like a, some, the paperwork on it, and tells the eunuch to go back and tell Esther, and tells Esther that she needs to do something about it. And Esther's like, well, I can't, I mean, you, do you realize there's standards within the, the palace? I can't just go see the king. And she says, I haven't seen him in 30 days, I can't do that. And Mordecai goes back to her and says, well, you have to do this or we're going to get killed. And they kind of go back and forth in this. And then Mordecai tells her that she has to or we're going to be killed. And so Esther goes through conversation, gets back to Mordecai and says, how about this? She says, you get all the Jew people together, Jewish people together and you fast. I'll get my people and we'll fast. And after three days of no drinking and eating, 
we'll come back together, and then I will, I will go tell the king. And so Mordecai did as, as Esther had asked. And so Esther puts, gets, gets to that point. They've all fasted. She puts on her royal robe. She goes, stands in the inner courts, the king's palace, in front of the king's courts, and the king notices her. And she wins favor. She comes before the king. And the king says, uh, what can I do for you? What is it, king? What's your request? You know, anything that you want. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And so she says, I want you and I want Haman to come together. And I got a feast I prepared for you guys. Um, and so they get to get, Haman comes, they get together. And she says, he's, the king says, what, are you, what is it that you want? Anything. And she's like, she just about gets it out of her mouth. And she, for some reason, they fasted and she doesn't say, she doesn't tell the king why. That, what she wants in that particular moment. And this is kind of what Bob's kind of covered last week. And she says, okay, what I want is to have another feast with you guys. To... And so she has another, she says, she, she, okay, that's fine. And so Haman's excited because he feels really important. He gets, not only was he here, he gets to come back the next day and he gets to go again. Um, but he walks out the king's palace and down into, by the gate and guess who's there? Mordecai. And guess what Mordecai doesn't do again? He doesn't tremble. He's not fearful. He's not afraid of the guy. And so it just ticks Haman off. And Haman's frustrated. He goes, calls his wife and he calls his friends and he tells them, he goes, hey, do you know how important I am? This is how important I am. And starts telling him how important he is. And he is important in that particular moment. But for some reason, Mordecai keeps getting under his skin. And so in that moment, he tells them, he goes, but Mordecai, he won't bow to me. He, will, he just he keeps doing what he's doing. And so the wife and the friends get together and says, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you, you know, erect a, a gallow like 50 cubits? And you got front seat with the king. Go to the king and tell him that you want him put there. And he's like, yeah, that's what I'll do. That's a great idea, family. And then there's like this little intermission in the story in chapter 6 where in chapter 6... The king can't sleep. And so he wakes up from... Well, he gets up and he's, he asks if they would bring the, the memorable book of memorable deeds. And he says, will you read the book of memorable deeds to me? And he starts reading about the person that saved the king's life earlier in, in the story. And they said, has anything ever been done for that guy? And they're like, well, no, nothing's ever been done for that guy. And so... They go, he says, well, who's in the courtyard? They say, Haman's out there. Well, bring Haman in. I'll ask him. And he asks Haman, he says, hey, what should you do for someone? What should I do for someone that I delight in? And Haman's like, you're delighting in me, aren't you? What you should do is get the, a robe, and actually maybe one of the king's robes. And what you should do is get all the, the high officials, the highest officials, and, and get this particular person and put them in a chariot with the big horses. And you should stream around town and tell everybody how important he is. And proclaim that. And the king goes, that's a great idea. Why don't you go get Mordecai? And why don't you do that for him since you're my highest official? And so he did it. He went around town. Mordecai gets straight around town. He goes back to the gate. Uh, Mordecai, uh, Haman goes home. <laughs> mortified again. <laughs> and goes to his wife. And guess this time was like, uh-oh. That wasn't such a good idea, was it? <laughs> You're in trouble. 
And then chapter 7, Haman the next day goes back to the, the next feast with the king. And they're there. And so it's the second day of the feast. And she's basically the king says to her, says, what is it that you want? Anything you want. And she says, you promise anything? Have I found favor in your eyes? And she tells the king, she says, you know what? There was someone that issued a me and all my people should be killed. And the king would, who, who would do such a thing as that? And she goes, it's our foe and our enemy, the wicked Haman. And so the king is frustrated. He's, his wrath comes over him and he gets up and goes into the garden. Comes, and as he's in the garden, Haman's you know, wrestling around trying to say, please bear my life to the queen. And he basically, oh, falling over her, He's falling over her. The king comes back in. He's like, what are you doing? You're going to attack her? Like looking like he's attacking her. So he's basically in my own palace. And so then there Haman ends up hanging on the gallow that he created for Mordecai. And so you see this thing where there's issued a decree that all the Jews should be killed in an island throughout the whole land. And there's this thing that's just like, uh-oh, life absolutely stinks. We're in a period of time right now where it's like we're looking around and we're going we're gonna to get a, a president that we don't like or that we like and the whole thing's going to corrupt and it's going to go bad. And God's up there laughing at us. And he's like, I got this. You need to place your faith in me. You need to trust in me. And so before we pick up in chapter 8, and I'll go through this quick. I'll, I'll get you out of here on time. Uh, and then that day, King Ahasuerus gave to the Queen Esther, chapter 8, verse 1, the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told what he was, what was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan that Haman uh, the Agites and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And verse 4 says, When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if, I, if the thing seem right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agite, the son of that guy, Hamadeth the which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the province of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming on my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction on my kindred? Then King Azuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews." in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict, edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials and the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Azuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service 
bread from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force or any other, or any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and the plunder their goods. On one day, throughout all the provinces of King Aguirre, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy. What was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed in all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to be taken vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses and were used uh, in the king's services and and urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued to Susa in the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in the royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa <clears throat> shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And so you have this, you know, it's when we're reading a story, it's easy. You're like, oh, it's an easy, you know the ending, <laughs> and it's, it's better. But you think about in a place where a decree was issued for their lives to be taken. And it was signed by the king, and the king was in charge. And you saw what happened to the queen when she didn't do what the king said. And so in this moment, the, here it is, and their people are living, and they're like, ah, I don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, there's just this great reversal, and it changes. The whole time they had been being dedicated, Mordecai especially, to his, to his God. He would not bow to any other thing. And when it came time of frustration and struggle, what did they do? They fasted. And in, you know, as you study fasting, and it says usually when they're fasting, they're praying. People, it's just, they go together. And so they seek God in all of this. And they gave it to God even though they weren't sure what was going to happen. You know, I think a lot of times in our lives we go through situations and we're like, where are you, God? I know in my life there's been eight years of a period of time where it's like, oh my gosh, where are you? There's been a three-year period in my life where I'm like, are you going to show up? And it feels heavy and it feels like he's not going to come. And at the end of the day, God always shows up. He asks us to be faithful to him. He wants us to be obedient to him. He wants us to follow him and trust him and realize that he trusts, that he loves us. And so in this story, it's a, to me, it's a beautiful story. A story of, this, this, of God, he lets his people get right to the brink, doesn't he? And then this great reversal happens. In the last, the very end of it, verse 17, it says, In the very province of every city, whether the king's command or his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews and feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And so they turned. Here it was, the Jews were going to be killed. I'm not a Jew. You remember Peter? Like they were going to kill Like I'm not, I'm not, That's not me. And all of a sudden, now the Jews, and people want to be a Jew. There's this great reversal, this great thing that happened. And I think as we look in life and you look through life, that no matter where you're at, God wants us to trust him no matter what's going on. You know, some of you, uh, you might be here, you're like, you say, God, you know, God, you're good, and you follow him 100%. And when you pray through Psalms 139, you say, search me, God, and know me. Is there any anxious way? And you're, you're like, yeah, I'm perfect. I'm good. I'm right before the Lord. And I, that's a good, you know, I appreciate you sharing that, but I got this, Mike. You know, some of you uh, are, my, are victims, and maybe you're struggling. 
the struggle of giving it all to God, that, you know, you're holding something back. You don't want to give it all to him. You're not ready to give it all to him. And God's like, you know what? I promised you, if you give it all to me, I'm God. I already know. <laughs> Share that with me. Let me walk with you. Let me love you through that. Because when you let me love you through it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to trust me all the more. You know, some of you might hear be, be holding on to bitterness because something that had happened to you, and it's been years. And you just keep holding on. You know, some of you right now, you might need to trust God a little bit more. Some of you might be like me and think you're doing all right. And you just, maybe you need to search a little deeper and see what's going on inside. And go, God, give it a little more. Search me. Is, is there anything in me that you want to get a hold of? You know, some of you here today might feel like, who is Jesus? You don't know Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, there was a great reversal for us at the very beginning. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, and knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, some of us here don't know Jesus, but what you need to know is no matter who you are, he went to the cross for every single person. <laughs> and if you don't know him, he said, you know what, I want to be in relationship with you. All you need to do is hand it over to me. And what he'll do in your life is he'll reverse your path. Every single one of us sitting here this morning, God wants to be in deep relationship with. And all he's asking is just say, trust me, because I love you deeply. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for Esther. And it's a story that in the book, you're never mentioned, God. Never really says prayer in this book. But at the end of the day, you see that Mordecai and you see Esther, that they were incredibly faithful people. And Esther being faithful in the time of calamity, time of trouble, that she said, you know what, let's stop for a minute and let's just fast. And Lord, I probably even wouldn't have known the depths of that until a few months, just about a month ago. What, what fasting does for us. And how it just focuses in on you. And how it helps us to see you clearer. Father, you have some faithful, in the story of Esther, you have some faithful people that were struggling, and that they were, they were stressed out. But yet you showed up, and now it's a story written about all these years later. And Father, I pray that you would develop our stories. That each one of us would that we would understand that it's more than just coming to a building on Sunday morning. It's that you want to be in deep relationship with us. That you want to have relationship with us. That everything that's going on in our lives, no matter where we're at, no matter what it is, whether we did it to cause it or whether someone caused it among us, it doesn't matter where we're at, whether we know you or don't know you, that you want to know us. And you want us to trust you and you want us to be in relationship with you. So Father, I pray for us this morning, no matter where we're at, no matter where we're standing, where, where we're sitting, that, that we would take a step towards you and trust you and begin to learn the depth of your love and maybe even more the depth of your love, that we would let go of the little things that we hold on to no matter what they are. We thank you and we praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Master Mike.